Good morning. How are y'all doing? Good. Let's turn to the book of Colossians. Starting in chapter 1, in verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your son Jesus, for sending him for us. We thank you that it's in him we have life. Lord, we pray for our children as they're receiving instruction in Sunday school. Lord, grab their hearts at an early age. Let them have a true faith in you. God, may the same be true for us, that we would truly believe and trust in your Son. Thank you that forgiveness is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. Life is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. Bless our time, Lord, as we continue on. You truly are good to us, and we love you. Amen. All right, here is my question for this morning that I want each one of you to answer by the time we get done with the sermon. And the question is this, where are you at with Jesus? Where are you at with Jesus? Because here's the thing, we have looked at these uh, six verses for the last few weeks and we've seen who Jesus is. And so now the question is, how will we respond? How will we respond to what we've been given? Because anytime we're given biblical truth, we have to decide what we'll do with it. Now, it's still true. We could read this over and over and over, and we could read it until we're blue in the face and still not believe it. But here's the thing. It's true whether we believe it or not. I mean, truth is true. Yes? So it is true whether we choose to believe it or not. It is true whether we act on it or not. It's true whether we like it or not. So our response or lack of doesn't change the truthfulness of it. I mean, that might be nice. Like if there's something we didn't we didn't want to be true and we just believed strong enough that it wasn't, and then it wasn't. I mean, it'd be a, a weird world to live in. Uh, but. <clears throat> The truth of the matter is, truth <laughs> is always true, and falsehood is always falsehood. It doesn't like change on any particular day, and we should want it that way. So here's the thing. I think sometimes uh, some of us can be at different places in our walk with the Lord, and I think sometimes we can hear different truths, and we're unsure of those particular truths. We might even doubt those particular truths. And I think sometimes what the culture does is it, it, it tells us that if we're unsure of a biblical doctrine, then we just have to toss like the whole thing out. 
And there's really kind of a scale when you think about doubt. I think sometimes when people think of doubt, it's like if I just slightly um, I'm unsure of a particular thing, that means I completely don't believe it at all. Well, that's not true. There's certain things you're probably quite convinced of, whether it's part of this, of just living in this world, or maybe it's the biblical truth of Scripture, you might be more um, grounded in the truth on some of those and quite sure of them than others you maybe are less sure of. But I think what happens sometimes is, is that we're just sold this bill of goods and we're told if we just aren't quite sure about something, then, then we need to consider ourselves as skeptics. And I'm going to say that you shouldn't do that. Because when you talk about skeptics, there's a difference between being a skeptic and being a doubter and being unsure of something. And so Psalm 1, just listen to what it says in the first verse. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So you got the wicked, the sinners, and the scoffers. And really, when you, when you look at probably how we define skeptic today, it's more of that, of that scoffer. Someone who is who's like a mocker of God. Well, if you're a believer, you're definitely not that. Correct? Yeah. Right? So it's okay to be unsure of certain, certain, certain biblical truths. It's okay to even maybe, you could even put yourself potentially in the category of doubting. But here's, here's what I want to say. It's okay to be there, but don't stay there. Get answers. Get counsel. Seek these things out. I remember uh, when I was working with the college ministry that we had here, this was years ago, there was one, there was one college student, I mean, he was like a continual doubter. Continual doubter. And always was, was pushing back on things. But that's where he stayed. He never read anything. He never studied. He just stayed a doubter and just was okay with his, I guess, doubtedness. Well, that honestly is not very, shouldn't be very satisfying. I mean, we want to know uh, the truth of things. And when we're talking about like the um, immortality of our souls, when we're talking about heaven or hell, when we're talking about salvation issues, when we're talking about e eternal issues, we should seek those things out. And move from, maybe from doubting to unsure to, to sure. There's so much information out there today that we have a plethora of resources available to us to study any issue and to get information on it. Think of how the Bereans were in Acts, Acts 17. Now these Jews were no, more noble than those in Thessalonica. You know, Paul goes from Thessalonica, then he goes to Berea. He, he lands there because, and listen to what it says, they received the word with all eagerness. And then it goes on, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So they heard something, and then they searched the matter out to see if it was accurate, to see if it was truthful. So when we come to something like Jesus and who he is, specifically his divinity, at some point you'll hear something like this, and maybe you've already heard it. The early Christians didn't believe Jesus was God. It wasn't until the 4th century at the Council of Nicaea where Jesus was declared God that the church finally started to believe that. And if you hear that for the first time, and perhaps you've not studied that much on that particular subject, you're like, oh my goodness, like if you're telling me for 300 years the early church didn't believe Jesus was God? It can kind of throw you for a loop for a second, potentially. 
here's the thing. One, it, this is a claim, right? It's a claim. It's an assertion. Nothing has been proven at this point. An assertion has been made. And remember, he who makes the claim or makes the assertion has to do what? Has to prove the claim. Has to prove the assertion. Now, did anyone, again, not knowing church history or their Bible, a statement like that, I mean, it can be, it can be concerning. I finally learned. It took me a while, but I finally learned, like, all these big assertions that the skeptics throw out there, that, that these big assertions that it seems like, wow, this is the newest thing, and we finally got the Christians, and this is just going to totally destroy the faith. Like, these assertions had been out there for decades and decades, some for, for centuries, and some for millennia. Like, a lot of them, you can trace back to early heresy in the church, and it was being rooted out, even the divinity of Christ. So Bart uh, Ehrman, who's, who's a skeptic, he, he writes, it will become clear in his book, it will become clear in the following chapters that Jesus was not originally considered to be God in any sense at all. Here's the thing. Always go back to the Bible. Amen. Always go back to the Word. In one sense, I don't care what the early church believed. I care what the Bible says. Because you look at some of the early church and you're like, oh, that's kind of interesting that they believe. So in one sense, I, I don't care. I think it's important in another sense to understand what they believed. But in one sense, what I care about is, is right here. What, what this thing says. What the Word of God says. And so one theologian says, a higher Christology than Paul is hardly possible. Meaning, Paul exalts Jesus so highly, you, you can't really exalt him any more highly. I mean, how more highly could you exalt Jesus than to proclaim him to be God himself? Right? And how can you read just these six verses that we've read the last few weeks over and over? How can you read these verses and, and come away with the idea that, that the early church didn't believe that Jesus was God? And this is just one passage. I mean, we could look at hundreds of passages in the New Testament. We can even look at uh, passages in the Old Testament pointing forward to that idea. So here's the thing. I want to talk about Christ being, being first and being first in your life. You can't, read, you, can't, you can't read these six verses and come away thinking that Jesus is kind of important. When I went to college, I went to college as an unbeliever. God was gracious to save me down there. But for me, God wasn't even in the top ten. And I was probably somewhere between like, a, you know, I was probably like a, a deist who, who intellectually assented to Christianity and the truth. Of it. I mean, I believed it. I believed it. But it made no difference to me. Definitely wasn't a reality in my life. It definitely hasn't changed whatsoever. So you can say to yourself, like, well, yeah, I mean, Jesus, he's, he's important. He's kind of important. He's right up there. No, here's the thing, brothers and sisters. Here's the thing. If you're not a believer, Jesus has to be alone at the top. He demands complete, utter, and entire allegiance. Why? 
because he's God. Because he is at the top. We're not trying to, to put him up there. We are only acknowledging and recognizing where he already is. So are you 100% for Jesus? If you are, guess what? That changes how you think. And it changes how you act. It changes what you do. And it changes who you are. The Romans, they had, I mean, the Romans had like, you know, a canopy of, of, of gods that they uh, worshipped. And they would have like a little shelf in their house. And then they could have different gods on that shelf that they worshipped. And the Romans were fine with Jesus being on that shelf with all the other gods. What they weren't fine with was Jesus being the only God. Well, I mean, that's how our culture is. If you, if you claim Christ is your own, that's okay as long as anyone else can believe what they want and you're not going to claim any type of real truth claim that Jesus is the only way. Oh my goodness. You believe that? I almost said that. Jesus is the only way. <laughs> that's, the culture does not like that. The world does not like that. They're okay with you and Jesus as long as people can get to heaven in other ways, then yeah, Jesus can be one of the ways. Does, does Jesus himself even leave that open as an option? John 14, what does he say? I am a way. Oh, wait, no, he didn't. I am the way, the truth, the life. And I remember we had um, the, the University of Chicago, it's really well known for its, its religious studies um, program. And we had a guest speaker come in uh, from the University of Chicago, from the Religious Studies uh, Department. And the professor uh, at Mizzou that I had, obviously very proud for them to be able to bring this speaker in. And this speaker is sharing with our class and, and talking and, and makes some mention about Jesus. And just, you know, he's just, there's, he's one way. And so I go up to this professor afterwards. And my, my professor is standing there too. And I'm just like, you know, Jesus didn't really leave that open as an option. He didn't leave that. I'm like, John 14. And I just, I was like taking, I think I was, I was in either my first or second year of Greek. And I was like, in the Greek, there's a definite article. The. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. There's not an indefinite, it's not a way, it's a definite article. It's right there. We can look at it right now. The, the, the person, if they were studied up, they knew that. I'm totally embarrassing my, my professor right now because I'm kind of showing up this professor. But truth is truth. Truth is truth. And I love this uh, guest professor enough to want them to be challenged and to know the truth. Regardless of their pedigree or however many degrees they had more than me or however many books they had or however many articles they had published. That might be uh, intellect, but there's a lot of wisdom lacking to not see something that the scriptures are proclaiming. If there is a competition between Jesus and something else in your life, that's a problem. Why should he be number one? I mean, we, we've seen all these reasons listed just here in these six verses. He created you. He has authority over creation. He has authority over the church. He laid down his life for you. He shed his blood for you. 
you have forgiveness of sins through him and him alone. It only comes through Jesus Christ. He has authority over the church. He wants you to make him to be the Lord and Savior that he truly is. But he has to be your Lord and Savior. He has to be your Lord and Savior. Intellectually, I knew he was the Lord and Savior, but I'd never come to a place of truly bending my knee and truly trusting in him. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. So where he ranks in your life, it's going to be displayed in various places throughout your life. Think about the home. Is the family first or is Christ first? Because for some people, I mean, it's all about the family. It's all about the family. What's the saying? You know, blood is thicker than water, right? Um, homeschool families, I feel like, are particularly vulnerable to this. They elevate the role of the family past the, the biblical parameters set. And it's the family is the end all, be all. Listen, if you ground your kids in the family, and make, make that the number one thing, and you know, grounding in Christ is the number one thing, guess what? They'll, they'll be faithful to the family. And they'll be faithful to you as a mom and a dad, for the most part. They'll, they'll see that as a, a virtue to be important. But where will they be with Christ? They'll just see that as like a tack on. That's an option. No, it has to be Christ first. They have to be grounded in Christ completely, entirely. Then, within that context, they can understand the importance of the family and the role of the family. We can even put our kids above Christ. We know the right thing for them, but it's too much of a hassle. I mean, it's just easier. I, I get it. It's just easier to let them go do their thing. But think about that. You're putting your, your comfort above their soul. We know the best path for them, but we just let them veto anything they don't want to do. That, that blows my mind. God put you in charge over your children. If they're in under your house, you have authority. Why would you toss that away? Why would you act like you don't have that? God's empowered you with that. And you're supposed to wield that authority to nurture, to love, to minister, to, to show them the beauty of Christ. And to just toss that away? To just abdicate? You're making an idol out of your children. You can't just give kids what they want. I mean, what do kids want? I mean, you give them an endless supply of snacks and drinks and access on their device to the internet, like they'd be pretty good to go, right? But that, that, that's not real care. Think about husbands and wives for a moment. Husbands see their wife as she is, and as she really is. And the wife 
sees her husband for who he is and who he really is. And no one knows you better than your spouse. That's just the truth. But you want to know the difference between a good marriage and a bad marriage? It's what you see first and what you talk about most. But all of us have spots and blemishes. All right? Not talking physically. Talking spiritually. Spots and blemishes. So what do we see first and foremost, and what do we talk about first and foremost? Is it the spots and the blemishes, or is it the holiness and Christ-likeness? Because it is so easy to criticize. It is so easy to condemn. It is so easy to complain. All right? Some of you have, like, master's degrees in it. I get it. It's unbiblical. It's unbiblical. But we criticize, condemn, complain. That's not Christ-like. We're supposed to build up. We are supposed to build up. And, and husbands, I mean, what is it? Look at Ephesians. Just look at Ephesians for a moment. Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5. Let's start in 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So, I mean, the command comes, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He gave himself up for her. What was his goal in doing that? Verse 26. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And our hearts as husbands should want to see our wives become more and more sanctified, more and more like Jesus. We can be a help for that, or we can be a hindrance to that. But we're going to be one of those. But the husbands are supposed to love their wives. What are the wives supposed to do? Man, super unpopular verse. 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. That's the context. You're submitting to your husbands just as you would to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Here is the beautiful thing. When both of these things are happening, the marriage flourishes. It's true. Husbands should make it easy for their wives to submit. Wives should make it easy for their husbands to love them. Let's be honest, sometimes we haven't done that. He goes on. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, verse 28, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. So as Christ is doing the church, what's he doing? Nourishing and cherishing it. He's not treating her awfully. He's not treating her wrongly. He's not treating her badly. Nourish and cherish. Much of this passage is addressed to the husbands. Why? Because they're supposed to be the leader. They are the leader. They are the head of the house. 
the husband falls in line and is seeking the Lord and doing what God calls him to do, guess what? The family flourishes. The family flourishes. So husbands, we should want to be we should want to be seeing our wives become more Christ-like. So then the question is, how do I help that happen? Criticize, condemn, complain? No. Nourish, cherish. Yes, at times that might mean challenging. That might mean correcting. But you're encouraging. You're lifting up. You're admonishing. You're loving, just like Christ does the church. What about? Christ, when it comes to the church, does the church mean more to you than the world? Does the church mean more to you than, than, than your own flesh? Well, I would say, if you're saying no, then prove it. Because talk is cheap. Yeah. Listen, if, if Jesus is willing to die for the bride, you should be willing to live with the bride. Jesus is willing to die for the bride. We're the bride, right? Yeah. If he's willing to die for the bride, you should be willing to live with the bride. Meaning, being in fellowship with one another, being around one another, doing life together. The very thing you want little to do with is the very thing Christ laid down his life for. Think about that. Here's what one theologian said. It is a beautiful thing when you see in the church love for all the saints. Not just for some, not just for the lovable, but all. This is what made the early church so amazing and so enticing to the ancient world. Barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free, male and female, Jew and Greek, learned and ignorant, joined hands and sat down at one table. They knew themselves to be all one in Christ Jesus. There had never been anything like it. And the world sees that and, and it just doesn't know what to do. When people from different socioeconomic uh, settings can come together, from different skin colors can come together, rich, poor, all different backgrounds can come together and fellowship with one another, be real with one another and do life together, that confounds the world. But it makes a statement that we are truly one in Christ. You know, a guest, a guest visited here a few times and said to me they were blown away by the love they saw and felt here. Let's make sure people continue to see it, not just the guests, but our brothers and sisters who are here week after week, month after month, year after year. Year. Another person who's a member who hasn't been one for too long said that the love the body of Christ has here is true and real, and they have not seen it found in quantities like it elsewhere. Amen. Amen. That takes effort and work. We, we just can't, we don't want to pat ourselves on the back. Like we continue just to strive to please the Lord. Yes, that's encouraging, so let's continue yeah. to do so. Yeah. What about making Christ first with our society? In a society where we're called to be salt and light to our neighbors in our city. Because Jesus is about conquering hearts. Did you know more Muslims have been saved in the last four decades than the previous 1400 years? 
One scholar of Islam said this, historically, nearly all conversions involved Christians becoming Muslims. Not the reverse. Islam has for 1400 years been the Hotel California of religions. You can check out at any time you like, but you can never leave. <laughs> because it prohibits adherents from either declaring themselves atheists or members of another faith. One Muslim after 9 11, 20 plus years ago, he happened to wonder like, how would the Christians react and, and treat the Muslims in retaliation? So, guess what he did? He's like, well, I'll read their Holy Bible and see how they're supposed to respond. And what did he see? He saw Jesus commanding his followers to love their enemies. He ended up joining a Bible study and soon got saved. And Muslim ministries that have been around for, for decades and have worked with Muslim communities and taken the gospel in there are seeing more salvations per month than, than they had seen for years in recent past. Like God is doing a good work. Let's be a part of it. Amen. Think about immigration to the U.S. You can say what you want about immigrants coming to America illegally or illegally. Think about this. The truth remains. The nations are coming to us. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to go to all the nations. But they're coming to us. Well, let's make sure to reach them right here on our own soil. And, and maybe uh, this wave of illegal immigration is God saying to the American churches, if you won't go, I'll bring them to you. Wow. Then you really will be without excuse. So let's make sure we're going, even if it's at that door and down the street. Let's make sure we're reaching people. Let's make sure we're taking the gospel just because they look different, let's not, <clears throat> let's not forsake the very thing that we've just been talking about. The Scythian and slave and barbarian being one in Christ. It shouldn't matter what their accent sounds like, how they talk, what they dress like, how they look. They need Jesus. Yeah. They need Jesus. Yeah. Just like you do and just like I do. Yeah. They need Jesus. So let's take them Jesus. Look at Jude chapter, uh, actually just one chapter in Jude. Look at Jude, verse 3. Here's what it says. Beloved, although I was very eager, verse 3, to write to you about our common salvation... I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So what does he want them to do? Contend for the faith. Stand up and be counted. Stand up and be counted. Jesus is number one. If he's number one, let's be willing to stand up and be counted for Jesus. Him and him alone. Because Jesus Guess what? Jesus is full of grace and truth. Where's that found? Anybody know? Look at 
that, I thank you all. You're gonna kick yourself once I read it. As soon as I start, you're gonna know what verse it is, or at least what chapter. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1, 14. And what do we get from that? So he's full of grace and truth. <clears throat> Just look at John, because I want you to see it. So that's verse 14. Verse 15 says, John bore witness about him and cried out, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. So it, it just says at the end of verse 14, he's full of grace and truth. Verse 16, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. What do we get? We get grace. We get grace. From his fullness we've received the grace grace. Let me just say something. That's what we need to be walking in, grace and truth. And some of you aren't. And some of you are walking in unforgiveness. And I'm actually talking about unforgiveness for yourself. Some of you need to walk in forgiveness. You've messed up. You failed. You screwed up. It was bad. It was big. It was for a long time. God forgives you. Are you bigger than God? No. Are you better? No. Are you wiser? No. no. Stop living in unforgiveness. Forgive yourself. Forgive yourself. It eats away at you. If you've been bought by the blood of Jesus, you have all the forgiveness that you need. Amen. And when you walk in unforgiveness, it's kind of like you're, you're disdaining the very blood that Jesus shed for you. Don't do that. All that to say, brothers and sisters, be filled. Be filled. Yes. What did Jesus say to the woman at the well? Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal drink, drink deeply from the well that Jesus offers, from the well of truth, from the well of forgiveness. The cup is available, 1 Corinthians 10. The cup of blessing that we bless, we just had communion, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation of the blood of Christ? It's a cup of blessing that we drink from. Blessing after blessing after blessing is what we're drinking from. And David, who shared the communion exhortation, when you keep reading back in Acts, brings us really to a good point in our sermon today. The whole passage is about what God has done and what he is doing. David stopped at verse 36, 37, said, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Why? Because the truth penetrated through the stone heart. It finally penetrated through. They were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the disciples, Brothers, what shall we do? What are they supposed to do? They're supposed to repent, believe, 
and then as an act of obedience, be baptized. But the repentance and the belief come first. Repentance, they're, they're convicted of their sin. They definitely had to put Jesus first. So to the, to the brothers and sisters here today, if you haven't been putting Jesus first, you do need to repent. You need to repent of that and ask the Lord for forgiveness. Maybe Jesus has never been number one in your life. Well, what are you supposed to do? Repent and believe. Repent and believe. In a couple weeks, we'll baptize you. But you repent, you turn away, you forsake your sin, you acknowledge Jesus as number one, you realize that he died on the cross for you, that his death was enough. It was enough. Nothing else has to be done. His offer of salvation is for every single person here. And his blood is enough. Enough to cover all sins everywhere. It was enough. So let him today cover your sins. Let him cover your sins. How does that happen? Trust and believe. Repent. Forsake the way you've been living and make Jesus number one. Put him at the top. If he's in the top ten, that doesn't work. You're like, well, he's number five. Well, then you got four idols, okay? Four idols to deal with. He's number two. You got one idol to deal with. So he has to be number one. And everything else, a far, far, far distant second. Really, he should be like the top 25 spots. Okay? In 26, you can start putting another group. He needs to be clear and far away, number one. Amen? So if you if you haven't been doing that as a believer, like today, Get right with the Lord. Get right with the Lord. I mean, He is, if you're a believer, He is number one in your life. But maybe you've been pushing them off, knocking them down. It's time to get it back there and acknowledge it. If you're not a believer, then, then acknowledge that's what He wants to be in your life. Bend the knee, confess that Jesus is Lord. And you will receive the gift of eternal life. You'll be adopted into His kingdom. It is a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing. You will never regret following. Encourage you today to trust in Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the blood of your Son, that it is enough, it is more than enough to cover any sin, regardless of how heinous and horrible it is. The worst of the worst of sins, yes, your your, your Son's blood. You want us to humble ourselves and come before you, Lord. I pray for a spirit of humility to wash across this room now. That we would humble ourselves before you. Knock away all pride. Knock it away. Reveal our hearts, God. You are the revealer of hearts. Show us our desperate need. We desperately need you. And let us push anything away, anything that might hinder, anything that might drag us down or pull us down, let us forsake it. Whatever it might be, let us forsake it. Why? Because we want you to be in that top spot. We want you to be number one. Jesus, have mercy 
salvation, Lord, today to those who don't know you. Let them truly believe in you and trust. Adopt them into your kingdom. Be the gracious Father that you are. Show them how much you love them. Show them what you've done for them in your son Jesus. And Lord, forgive us for where we've fallen short yes. and not making you number one. Yes. We proclaim that you are our Lord and King. We proclaim that you are number one. That you are our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You are the Messiah, the one sent to rescue us.